Well, 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 look who it is, back once again for another episode of Alex Listens, the podcast about philosophy, politics, race, and mental health. This is your host, Alex Hamo. Today, I sound especially nasally because I'm back in Nam, Melbourne, and I have very bad allergies, and this is not the place to be for the allergic spirit. Nevertheless, today I sat down with the anonymous administrator of the infamous meme page, Merilectuals 2.0. Much to my surprise, the administrator of this meme page was an extraordinarily intelligent, cultured, and articulate individual. And we had a wonderful conversation which spanned many topics. We spoke about the philosophy of memes. What do they represent? What can they tell us about culture? Why are they so important? Why did they go viral? We also spoke about the current state of international politics. Today's guest and I were both in London at the same time in 2019. And so we spoke about what the ambience, what the environment was like in London when Jeremy Corbyn lost the election to Boris Johnson. We also spoke about the current state of Australian politics, of American politics, and obviously we spoke about the culture right here in Melbourne, what it's like, why there is so much LARPing going on, why there is role-playing, why there is cosplaying as poor. We spoke about trends, we spoke about music, we spoke about art. It was a very comprehensive discussion of where things are at. It was a comprehensive and wide-ranging discussion of where things are at in my life and in the life of this anonymous meme page administrator. Before we get on to the episode, a few quick things to mention. First of all, I teach a beginner's philosophy course. Over 350 people have taken the course, have been teaching it for nearly a year, and the next semester begins very soon. In fact, it begins in about uh, 10 days on the 15th of February, which is not this coming Tuesday, but the Tuesday after. The course runs for six weeks, it's online, it's pay what you can afford, and obviously it's beginners friendly. You don't need any context or background in philosophy in order to do the course. And if you're interested in taking the course, if you want more details about it, there's a link in my bio. Otherwise, send me a message on Instagram, or you can send me an email or whatever. Second of all, if you're enjoying my podcast or my writing or my social media presence in general, please consider supporting it because it takes a lot of time, takes a lot of effort. And obviously, in this funny stage of late capitalism we're in, it's very hard to make an income by being a content creator unless you are endorsed by... Amazon or something like that. And I'm not endorsed by Amazon. Uh, I hope to be endorsed by you. So this podcast, my work is brought to you by you. You can support me via Patreon. It's a very easy platform to sign up to. It will cost the equivalent of buying me a coffee once a month and it will help me afford to keep making these episodes, to keep making philosophy and politics content, which I hope you're enjoying. Otherwise, you can support me with a once-off donation via PayPal and there will be a link in my bio to that as well. And finally, make sure you follow me on social media. I'm at Alex Listens on Instagram and at Alex Listens on TikTok, where I post some more unhinged content, if that's what you're after. Without any further ado, I bring you my conversation with the erudite and learned Merilectuals 2.0 administrator. So today I am here with the ever mysterious Merilectuals 2.0. So how are you on this on this hot day? Uh, yeah, I'm really good. I'm I'm hot, but uh, 
as we discussed in the pre-show, I've got aircon, which I'm very lucky. So um, I currently have the split system running full bore. Um, yeah, so I'm not that hot. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm okay. Um, I slept for 12 hours, which is always really disorientating. But um, yeah, feeling, feeling good, feeling good enough. So question one, question one. Uh, the question on the tip of everyone's tongue, um, not who are you, because that's stupid, but why Why are you anonymous? Why? And where did the name come from? Those are the two beginning questions. Why are you anonymous and where did the name come from? Well, I'll start with the name question because there was actually originally another account called Merylectuals. And I had some relationship with the administrators of that account. And I, I like to say that it was run by a cabal of Melbourneities. And eventually that account stopped existing because I guess uh, they're not complete sellouts like me. And they were just, you know, those great shows where it's like we're doing one season and that's it, then we're out. So they just called it quits. But anyway, at the time that they started it, they... Um, I was like, I want to be involved. And they were like, your brand's different to ours. And so I, um, uh, they were like, but you can start like an offshoot. You can start um, Merylectuals 2.0. We dare you. And for ages, I was, it was a lockdown thing. I was like, no, I don't want to. I, I don't think I can hack it all by myself. And then eventually I was like, fuck it. You know, I'll just start it. Um, and so I did. And it's kept going from there. Um, the actual name, so the Merylectuals is playing on the, uh, the obviously the intellectual trend, the selectual suffix, which has come to dominate like, edgelord, deep web, uh, kind of modern, bourgeois, bohemia, intelligentsia on the, on, on, on the web sort of vibe, um, all these little gremlins online that like to be in the, the kind of post-work cybersphere. Um, so it was a play on that. And then Merrells are from those shoes that all, um, you know, the kind of architecture students at RMIT like to wear, that sort of anti-aesthetic, I'm, I'm a chef or I'm a, I don't know, a surgeon look that the, so it's like Merrill Lectual. So that's the name in the 2.0 is because I'm actually the sequel to the originals. Now, the second part of your question was anonymity. Um, I think it's just like part of the joke about like the admin reveal and things like that regarding meme pages. But what I never realised as someone who's been like an artist for most of their career kind of struggling for attention was that in anonymity, people are, like, they're enormously interested. So my whole life I've been, like, razzle-dazzle. No one, you know, gives a shit. And then as soon as you um, have some sort of enigma surrounding you and you can kind of tease them, there's a lot more interest. So that's sort of why um, I've maintained the anonymity, though. I would say that the secret has started to uh, um, get out amongst certain people. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're, I think you're absolutely right about like the hype surrounding anonymity. It seems like it's just the ultimate, um, yeah, the ultimate trap for the mind. Like as soon as you don't know who's running something, you can't help but project and like try and figure out and hypothesize who's, who's behind the screen. Um, and yeah, uh, that's, that's a funny story about about the the meme the original Merylectuals page who didn't who didn't want you and now look at now look at what you've become the ultimate 
the ultimate. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I wouldn't say they didn't want me. I think that they just saw that there was also, look, there was a value add for them, like by having a 2.0, then we could have a discourse. We had a dialogue. We would have fake beef, but we were like friends. You know what I mean? So it's, it's all cool. Um, it wasn't like, oh, you know, it was just more like, why don't you do this and start? And I think, you know, they were already kind of at capacity. There were a few different members, you know, there was only so many people you can have operating one thing. So, um, I don't want to insinuate there was any beef there. There wasn't, we're all good friends. Oh, I'm glad to hear, glad to hear all things, are smiles in the, in the cyberspace. Um, so yeah, you mentioned the, you mentioned like a number of big, big terms, um, dark web, uh, insellectuals, um, Merrill shoes, surgeon, chef shoes. Um, so let's, let's talk about this for a moment. So you're absolutely right. The insellectuals term title occupies very curious territory on the internet. Um, there is this kind of incredible irony, but also incredible darkness to uh, some of the meme pages that run under this, you know, intellectuals adjacent um, brand. So, yeah, I suppose what, like, what has, what is your involvement with this kind of, uh, what's your involvement with this title like? Um, like, are you, is your meme page pure irony? Is it pure satire or is there, like, are you actually trying to, you know, provide some robust analysis of, you know, trends in pop culture and in Melbourne and this kind of thing? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I think when I started the main page, it was more sort of affiliated with this sort of deep, like, edgelord sort of stuff, which isn't, um, I think it's taken off in other places more than it has Melbourne. It has, it has recently, but I think the whole kind of post-word edgy thing came to Melbourne a bit later, probably because I think uh, the trends around wokeism and social justice were so deeply entrenched uh, and importantly, I would say, because I think that it actually has kind of some of these edgy people uh, are kind of pushing the envelope too far in some respect. I think there's a nice middle ground where we can acknowledge that um, language is this silly tool and we can make fun of things and that can actually be helpful rather than always just um, always just a, a blight on some minority or something. You know, like there's, there's a space where we can actually uh, acknowledge the grand illusion of the world and, and have a bit of fun um, uh, and still have progressive politics and indeed politics that are grounded in the material and in the reality of the world rather than in uh, heightened conceptions of self or like manifesting cultural capital to, to, to kind of leverage it as almost lateral violence against fellow community members. You know, like the, the, you can have all those acknowledgements but also not be a complete cunt. Um, so, but initially I was very in that kind of vein of intellectuals kind of making uh, edgy memes about the Taliban and things like this. Like, uh, and then uh, when I realised that all politics was local and that I actually had more insight regarding the specific 
uh, weird shit that goes on in Melbourne and the the kind of parochialism that is that is uh, bourgeois bohemia Melbourne. Um, that's when the page actually started taking off. And then the other thing is I'd never been a really big consumer of memes and there's certain tropes in that kind of thing, like aesthetic tropes that I've never really bought into. I actually think that what I do is closer to like um, long form for a meme but very short form for a literary experience, just like a little little anecdotes that I, that I put on images um, as opposed to um, some of those really kind of I, I, quite anti-aesthetic um, meme pages that follow similar tropes and talk about the same sort of things all the time. So there's, it's, it's adjacent, but it's not in the same lane what I do. But it's, it's been an evolution as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and I think like uh, the way you described your, your memes as like these little literary nuggets with a kind of, you know, graphic backdrop. Um, yeah, I guess on that note, I was wondering what, because yeah, it seems like, you know, I tried to, I tried to get a sense of, um, you know, the, the niche where your, where your content is located and, you know, it's, it's sprawling. It kind of covers like so much stuff, a lot of which like, you know, was like, I, I didn't quite, uh, understand. Like, I think some of the pop culture references were like straight over my head. Um, but like, yeah, I guess, you know, being someone who, who operates a meme page, um, what, what is the meme for you? Like, what, what does it represent? Because it, you know, in what you were saying, it sounds like there is incredible value in being able to make this small thing that's very simple that, but you know, it's, it's a lot more accessible than an essay or than a video. It's just one photo with a bunch of words, but it is an extraordinarily powerful thing. Um, and it does like, you know, capture and explain and kind of pro- and provide an insight into like very deep and um, yeah, important like p- parts of culture. So yeah, I suppose to reduce all of that to a question, what like, what exactly is a meme in your eyes? Um, and like, what, what is the objective of, of your page? Okay. So what I, I think for me, a meme is really just text on an image in its simplest form. I think that's what a meme is. Um, yeah. And sometimes not even on an image, sometimes just on a colorful background. Um, but usually the, the image has to speak to the text and vice versa and I think the memes I make usually gain value from being images of celebrities or things that people are well acquainted with and then bringing the celebrity down to the mundane and speaking to the the archetype that that celebrity making that specific gesture how that might speak to the archetypes of the of the people in the groups which surround you and so in my case it's not speaking to universals. It's speaking to a, a, um, a group of tribes in um, that are largely uh, either gay or like um, in a north people. But actually, I've I've made quite a lot of um, effort to try and include the south because I quite like south. And um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> 
I have no, I have no problem with that. This weird division at North South. I'm quite commercial in a lot of respects and quite mainstream, and I love chap laps. Um, uh, what was the second part of the question? There was what is a meme? The objective. What the What's the objective? Oh, oh the page. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the objective of the page is to take the piss out of people in um in my tribe. I think I think you spoke to this um as somewhat about people kind of laughing as poor or whatever within. Uh, I I think the the scene we operate in certainly there's a there's a, a whole different range of classes and people involved, but uh, there's in general in Australia, but. Uh, there's a, there's a degree of affluence and certainly a degree of cultural capital and things like that. So I think you've got to face up to that and be authentic about where you are and, and that uh, sometimes being taken the piss out of is the best best way to do that. So um, uh, I'm the, really the objective of the page is to identify who the characters are, um, exaggerate those characters and, and take the piss a bit so that people can have a laugh and also maybe check their privilege in a way that's a bit less kind of uh, uh, identitarian and navel-gazing as, as it has been in the past. Mm. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and that last point you make is a really important one. Like, um, you know, it seems like certain certain ways, certain trends in especially Melbourne's culture uh, you know, call outs, cancelling, this kind of stuff. Like it makes you wonder um, what shape progress is, what shape progress actually has or what shape like, you know, getting people to check their privilege actually has. And I think, yeah, I think the meme and your memes are like a, a really intelligent way of doing that because they're not like, you know, they don't have the the kind of, the fear they don't have the the kind of fear baggage that comes with and the ostracization that comes with you know the word cancelled or called out because i think people hear that and they go into this kind of shock when it's directed towards them and then you know a lot of the time you know there's just the silence a radio silence and no one actually kind of repents or everyone forgets and they cancel someone else. And so it seems like the meme, especially with the frequency that, you know, memes can be posted at, um, yeah, it seems like it's a constant, a constant gentle reminder for people to like, to reflect on like who they are and what they do. Um, yeah. And like one, one thing you mentioned was this LARPing, um, this LARPing trend, which like it probably is much more than a trend. It seems like it's just a, f- a fact about, um, about, you know, life in life in Melbourne. I think like, you know, I don't know too much about Sydney, but it seems like Sydney, there is less LARPing and people kind of embrace their wealth in a more authentic way. Um, but yeah, like this, <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of laughing there. I've spent a bit of time in Sydney, but it's it's not it's probably not as profuse as Melbourne. But I think I think certainly in cosmopolitan hubs globally, there's a bit of this thing amongst certain certain subsects because they they're aware of 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 it of their um of their privilege and they know that there's some something to be gained in certain circles by by pretending to have certain I guess mi- minority or oppression tropes, which is somewhat inauthentic. Yeah. 
but yeah, go on. Melbourne, Melbourne, it's more, it's more diffuse. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, and that's like this. This is, yeah, I think you said that really nicely. Like, um, there is there is something to be gained by uh, pretending that you're not what you are. If what you are is extraordinarily wealthy, um, or if you come from you know this like incredible comfort of gener- intergenerational wealth. So yeah, I suppose like. Um, I'm wondering if you have any ideas about, I guess I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this, this LARPing, um, what you think it represents, uh, about not so much about the people who LARP, but about, um, like what, what kind of, you know, progressive culture has become if what it has become is like, um, a kind of gigantic masquerade. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I love the word masquerade, potentially. I mean, we're all putting on masks all the time. I think with the laughing thing, I feel like it's a little less common than it was a few years ago. I feel like it really peaked around 2018. Um, I think the thing was about it that it was always a little bit more complex like than the clothes uh, the clothes you wore, you know, say we're just looking at clothes as the masks we wear and we're talking about clothes as um, a way of saying, oh, I'm kind of shabby chic or like I'm taking on um, even just streetwear in general or going to savers or all these things and you might have more money. But then in a lot of cases it wasn't um, streetwear or going to savers. It was, you know, girls going and buying clothes at, error or shifting worlds or any of these quite high-end boutique designer spaces that have frayed edges and things like that and so for those in the know we're very aware that they're not cheap clothes the the people who who also shop in those spaces aren't seeing these things as cheap they're seeing them as expensive the fact that trends and fashion designers borrow from across um classes is um is similar to how people you know operate as cultural appropriators or cultural tourists um and sometimes there's something poisonous at the core of that sometimes there's nothing too poisonous at all it's just something that's happening sometimes the drivers of that are to do with um a rebuke of uh, of of aesthetics um and and beauty and and about trying to create something ugly and make it beautiful so it's i don't think it's always working on a class um thing but maybe it is um but yes certainly i think that it's it's this kind of complicated world but in terms of the clothes and the masking um that's one thing but the the it kind of bothers me kind of doesn't but the the bigger one that does bother me is the 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 sort of donning of oppressive tropes to kind of get into spaces where you already had easy access anyway so that's that's um that's probably more um yeah uh, malicious or i don't know so it's it's a funny thing but in terms of what it means for contemporary progressive politics i think what happened throughout all of wokeism is that um, progressivism became distinctly immaterial distinctly kind of quite liberal really in terms of centering um selfhood the ego and likability within a space and how good you are like it's really about how good am i and how am I perceived as good, rather than what can we all do together to make things better? It's um yeah, 
I think that's where, where it's at. It's still out there. Some people are rejecting it. There was this nice little moment in 2018, 19, where I, it felt like, you know, Corbynism, Sanders, to some degree, that there might be some old school, you know, sort of semi-leftism coming back and I don't know where we're at now. <laughs> anyway. I don't know what you think of all that. Like, what do you think of it? I yeah. Um, well, yeah. I think I think I like what you're saying about um, this uh, the trend for. I like what you're saying about the movement towards the kind of um, the the individual politics. Um, you know, how good am I? Uh, how how you know how much can I? demonstrate my allegiance to whatever these political ideals are um yeah i like i like this part of what you're saying and i think it's really true it feels like while you know while uh let's talk about melbourne um it's it sounds like you have um like you have a really developed perspective on this um which is like yeah an incredible resource um, but like one, something that I have felt is that there is this kind of paradox where people are desperate to join this community, this progressive inner North community. Um, but essentially the community is made up of every community is made up of individuals, obviously, but it feels like this inner North community in Melbourne is made up of, um, is made up of individuals who are kind of um self-propelling constantly and who are in it for themselves or who are in it to who are in it purely to signal purely to signal rather than like um you know to kind of to or you know some some are in it purely to signal others are in it to make change but it feels like generally the objective isn't or generally there isn't a very strong political literacy going on. Um, and it seems like, you know, people, it seems like the inner North has become such a powerful meme that people latch onto it without having any idea, um, you know, what, what it could, what it could do politically or what it could change politically. Like imagine if, um, uh, yeah, imagine if like all these people who migrate from the south side to the north side were transparent about their money and like, you know, gave gave to charity or something like this, like even something very simple like that. Um, like, yeah, so I guess like, I don't know, my thoughts are kind of jumbled on this topic because I think it's like the, there is there are so many parts, there are so many parts to it that interest me. Um, but yeah, I think like one thing that I'm interested in hearing you talk about is uh, the, so you spoke about um, uh, Corbynism um, and Sanders 2018-2019. And when I was actually living in London at the time of the election that Corbyn lost. Um, I was also there. Oh wow! Did you vote? I voted in that election. Yeah, I voted. <laughs> I didn't. I, I was amazing. It was pretty cool that I love that we could vote. I was yeah. like, what? How yeah. can I vote? <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, weird Commonwealth yeah, shit. Yeah. It feels like, at least the area I was in in London, which was Hackney Wick, it felt like that had a really, like, it felt like that's what Hackney Wick is what like Brunswick could become if like if there weren't if there wasn't I don't know if there wasn't like a security a kind of financial security that everyone had like I guess I met many people in like southeast London who genuinely were extremely precarious in their employment like troubled artists who were actually troubled artists and i feel like every troubled artist i meet in melbourne like you know is like not financially precarious and never will be because of maybe that's you know that's that's a generalization but yeah like what was i don't know what do you think are the key differences between or what do you think happened such that corbynism and um sandersism didn't like prevail um in in kind of progressive communities because it seems like at least the vibe that i got in london was that everyone lost an extraordinary amount of hope after sanders lost uh sorry after corbyn lost um yeah yeah i remember playing a gig, i played a gig that night and um i was happy as larry and then i kind of you know because i just played a gig and i was um you know that vibe, and then I got on the t- train, and I didn't think they'd call. But you can tell it's a landslide when they call it at ten p.m. or whatever nine thirty. Like if it's if they can call it that early in a jurisdiction as large as the United Kingdom, then you know it's a landslide. And there was this morose sense on the train. Um, but I think speaking to what you're talking about earlier is that austerity politics um, and the erosion of the welfare state has been far more um, pervasive in the UK and in the US than it has been here. In spite of nine years of conservative um, rule here, our services economy has been somewhat eroded, but it's not anywhere near as bad as London. And you know that when you're working there, having come from a country where your wage is normally in a dead-end job like as an adult, like somewhere near $25 an hour, and your rent is maybe, I don't know, seven to eight hundred a month compared to seven hundred to eight hundred pounds a month, earning ten pounds an hour. So your purchasing power is enormously diminished as uh, as a as a young person living in London without means. Um, so that's why you get these people that are in more precarious situations. You also get people with an inordinate amount of wealth in London that you come across. So there's the laughing occurs everywhere. But I understand what you're saying about sort of Hackney encountering more people who you felt were generally kind of more authentic in, in, in their poverty or in, in their precariousness. I don't know that we should fetishise that, however, because a lot of the um, uh, – we're lucky that this system in Australia so far – um, hasn't been quite as eroded. I don't know what the forces are at play there. I don't know if it's just that um, 
like I don't know what the how how we're just known as the lucky country, right? We've got a lot of resources, and otherwise, other than that, we're just a services economy. But um, the fact that we've managed to maintain a relatively progressive tax system—I mean, it's getting there's a plan to phase that out with the coalition, and hopefully, um, Labor, even though they don't seem to have much. I don't know where the Australian Labor Party is at, like now at the federal level. I find them grossly un, um, uninspiring, lacking in charisma and and uh, bootlicking. But any, anyway, what, what, what were we getting at? The cor- why, why do I think Corbyn didn't win? Um, because somehow amongst all this progressivism in urban centres, there wasn't this outward thinking about, oh, what's my suburban aunt thinking? What's my cousins in the country or just in general suburbia, middle England? How can I reach out to them? And people blame identity politics, whatever. I just think that we've all become too tribal. We're all in our little bubbles and um, we see each other at family Christmas. I I think that's sort of why. And the the Labor Party, even though I think in Corbyn's case, they really were putting quite a a progressive agenda, really redistributive agenda. But the comms around it, the communications around that didn't speak to um, Northern England, the, the, you know, formerly strongly Labor areas. And I also wonder if it's that the left, both in Corbyn, Sanders is quite charismatic, Corbyn, I think, is a bit wet, and I think Trump proves the power of charisma. Um, and if if we could get someone that can speak to the, you know, the old heartland, I don't know, maybe you'd be able to heal those divides. I think there was also this this, this thing of the, the, the immigration thing in the UK, um, whether it's real or perceived, um, very different to uh, uh, to here, where the large large majority of immigrants are, are professionals. Um, uh, whereas they were, you know, this underbelly of kind of Polish and Eastern European immigrants coming to do jobs that Brits probably didn't want, but also there was this sense that it was undercut because the economy is changing towards a services economy from a manufacturing economy. That's just larger global forces. But how you can then, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know how you fix it, but that I think those were the things that play with um with Corbyn, it was a dreadful tragedy because in 2016, the election before, it really felt like he got close. Um, and I think the the Murdoch media assassinated him, the, the sort of false narrative around anti-Semitism um, uh, was quite uh, powerful. I remember sitting in, um, in Soho in, um, in an old, in a greasy spoon. So here I was in Soho in the peak of like gentrification amongst all the global elites buying all their beautiful fashion and all, all the all the kind of capital G gays, but there's still this greasy spoon that serves four pound bacon and eggs. And I was sitting next to a table of tradies who'd come in to do some work, but they were all clearly from middle England. And they were all talking about how disgusting it was that Corbyn was an anti-Semite. Um, and I, I was just sitting there, like, kind of marvelling at this um, this conversation of, like, how effective, I guess, that, that propaganda um, by the Murdoch tabloid press, which is probably more... Um, in the UK, it's, it's just everywhere. You can't escape it. You get on the train, there's a free Murdoch paper, and you pick it up, and it's there for you to read. So I think those things all colluded to... Um, cause the downfall which is a shame because 
um, yeah, it felt hopeful. I don't know. Mm. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, it did feel hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think like, I don't know. I hadn't really kept abreast with UK politics until I was there. Um, which, and I wasn't actually there for very long. Like I was there from early, I was there for about a year, early 2019 until early 2020. Um, and it was like a pretty incredible time to be there with like, you know, not knowing if an election was going to be called and then an election being called and then, you know, an election being lost and then COVID and like, you know, the heartbreak and, um, yeah. And like that morose air that kind of hovered over London for weeks after the election. Um, that was like a very, it's pretty like awful thing to be in given that it was like ice cold with like two hours of sunlight. Um, and like, you know, kind of catatonic depression all over. Um, um, yeah. And like, I think, you know, I think, I think you're right. Like, you know, uh, progressive, progressive politics, uh, is, it feels like it's being undermined by these like various factions that pop up and fight each other over kind of non-issues like, um, kind of very, very hyper-specific identity politics stuff. Um, you know, like, yeah, and like very kind of tiny areas in, uh, you know, for example, like, um, you know, a, a social progressive but a fiscal conservative will be absolutely alienated by a social progressive and fiscal progressive. Like there is just no, feels like there is no kind of, room for like these an overlap or kind of you know an inclusion in this sense and like it feels like things like this um like i you know i don't know i i i'm not like a political scientist but i suspect it's things like this that that are much more rife in in the left side of politics that aren't as problematic in the right side because either people don't care as much um yeah, maybe people don't care as much about these like tiny, tiny differences, <clears throat> like kind of, you know, center right um, compared to like, you know, uh, I don't know, neoliberal, full neoliberal um, conservative. Um, so, yeah, like I think I don't really know what it's going to take to for there to be a, a shift to the center left in Australia. Um, I don't, well, I don't really know where, how labor would be classified right now, whether they'd be center left or just center or, um, I'm not like, I, I'm not abreast with labor politics either. I also find, um, you know, it to be deeply uninspiring. Um, I went to Canberra recently and like, you know, kind of felt like the serotonin in my body, of which there is like very little, I felt it kind of like, you know, evaporate outside parliament house. Um, so yeah, but I think like, I think one thing, like one thing that I worry about and like, you know, I guess I've banged on a bit about, you know, this kind of LARPing stuff and have kind of bounced around a bit in our conversation so far, but one like real worry of mine, um, I think really the only worry of mine about, this LARPing. I think there are two worries. One is that 
LARPing as, LARPing as like, you know, someone who doesn't come from money, um, you know, obviously, you know, it's, it's not genuine, it's not authentic, blah, blah, blah. But I think the major problem is that it doesn't encourage people to do what money can allow people to do, which is like actually make a lot of change. Um, that's one thing. And the second thing is that, um, oh yeah, okay. Well, let me talk about that a little bit more. So I think like, um, you know, I, I don't come from a wealthy family and so I don't really know what it's like to inherit intergenerational wealth or to have a trust fund or to go to a private school or whatever. But like, you know, I know a few people who have like, you know, $200,000 in their bank account from grandparents or something. Um, and like, you know, houses in their name and this kind of thing. And it feels like there is absolutely no room in, in like, you know, kind of, uh, in Melbourne's progressive culture for people to announce this and not be alienated. Um, and so it feels like people just hide it. They hide this, this wealth that they have and nothing ends up happening and, um, no good comes or very little good comes from this money. It's not ever redistributed. Um, so that's one thing. Maybe I'll kind of mention the other thing and we can talk about it later. Um, and I think the other thing is that like, I think the other problem with LARPing, I can't believe I'm talking about LARPing so much. The other problem with LARPing is, um, that it, uh, it doesn't, as you LARP, it doesn't, or when you LARP, it doesn't require that you have an understanding of, um, politics, the politics of the community or area that you are in, which is fine. But I think that like, it means that virtue signaling happens too much. Um, and that there isn't like a kind of, you know, genuine attachment to the political ideals that people are signaling by wearing what they wear or, you know, consuming what they consume. Um, so yeah, that was, that was quite a lot and like quite a complex arrangement of thoughts. Um, do you have any thoughts or? Yeah, no, I think you're right because I think the thing is, um, uh, the redistribution of cultural capital is always going to be easier than actual material redistribution. So it's always going to be easier to virtual, virtue signal because you're not at actually any material loss. And so that's why it became so popular probably was because it was the easy thing to do as a path of least resistance and it sort of allowed people to perform a certain thing and then get away with actually not, um, you know, giving up their means. Um, so if you can sort of be a bit more honest, I have noticed... <laughs> amongst certain uh, like I've got a certain friend who's like oh yeah I'm rich and I was like oh so refreshing to hear it just say it just say it just say it um and then you can go from there and then get into a culture of um of charity and and redistribution um and just make it part of your part of your thing yeah I guess like one thing I'm interested in hearing your thoughts about as someone who uh you know, makes things in various shapes and forms. Um, something that I have, something that is very personal to me is, uh, being, 
kind of financially rewarded for my work. Uh, and it's a very hard thing to do as a creative person. Um, especially if you have no attachment to the corporate world. Um, so like, for example, this podcast, uh, you know, I rely on patrons and getting a patron is like, you know, probably more difficult than like trying to win an election against like a conservative government. So yeah, I suppose like what what is your experience of patronage? What is your experience of like want, you know, being making things um in whatever shape or form, musical, playing gigs? What's your relationship or thoughts on this and like, you know, generating an income, trying to earn an income? Yeah, this is such um like it's a fascinating um, thing because throughout we don't have a large culture of patronage or philanthropy in this country, um, uh, which I've come up against a lot because we have we've sort of rely on a sector which is funded predominantly by grants or ticket holders or people who come to these things. So, um, but as the grant pool has been slowly diminished over the last um, ten years, and it has been really uh, hugely. Um, because, you know, when I started making work as an artist, it was a Rudd-Gillard government. And even though we say there's, you know, these, um, uh, you know, they're, they're practically the same and in a lot of respects they are, but actually there was a much larger pool for public funding of arts under Rudd-Gillard. And, and you notice it. Um, and it means that the companies takes, take less risks. And then I don't know where the hell you find a patron. I know that you have like a Patreon. There's not a huge, um, that, that means that you're relying on, on, on smaller gifts rather than larger ones. Um, uh, I guess like multiple smaller ones, which is similar to what if I played a gig having lots of ticket sales. And so yeah, I guess it's like a, a fight for popularity or whatever. Um, I've always felt weird because I have come from, um, so in, in let's being authentic, I, I come from not like a, a really affluent family, but I went very comfortable. And so I felt that um, uh, always that I was uh, kind of reluctant to ask for, for patronage. And I always had this thing of like, well, I should have a day job. Like I should be trying to supplement it through, through my toil, whether it's just in the artistic space or outside of it. Um, and it's been hard for me to kind of overcome that but I mean I guess the thing is when you're selling a ticket I guess it's different for you because you're making podcasts that has to be necessarily free in some respects so then you have to kind of it's almost like a, a gift economy or like you're at lentil as anything or something like you you're just relying on people to give back which is similar to like streaming um with music people don't pay for it you could put it on um what's it called oh my god I'm gonna say band, band camp band camp <laughs> But other than that, the way you generate an income as a musician is through your merch sales or your ticket sales these days. So the whole economy has shifted under our feet. And in a lot of ways, that's good because it's meant a lot of people who formerly didn't have access now have access to things for free. Um, but in other ways, it's not so good because large enterprises like Spotify have monopolized the market. And it means that some people are making huge gains off the toil of other artists who are making next to nothing. 
But then I have these other complex thoughts, which is that, well, you know, there's a whole lot of people making art. Some of it's good, some of it's not so good. You know what I mean? Like, and then how much do you, at what point are you worthy of getting, um, uh, like, remunerated substantially for, for what, what might be something you just give up in a few years? And, but actually the, the remuneration would encourage you to stick with it. And so I have these kind of quite, that feels like quite a nasty thought to think that. Um, but in, in a land of dilettantes and hobbyists who are, as you say, sort of, I guess, financed um, to some degree by either, we, uh, you know, a combination of middle-class welfare and, and, and their, their parents or whatever, um, at what point, at what point, who, who deserves to be the maker, who deserves to... So there's all these questions regarding patronage and who's a worthy um, recipient of that patronage. And also how does the patronage then go to um, were, um, amend uh, for past wrongs in terms of who takes up space at the table? And then if the metrics by which you measure good art are Western metrics or colonial metrics, how can you then, and we're all guilty of this with our tastes and things that are embedded in our soul, um, uh, you know, when, when that redistribution happens, someone, if there's a limited number of spots for the grant or for the patronage, someone's going to lose out. And if that means that you're in an affirmative action sort of world, if you're like me, the white guy, you know, you, you, have to, you have to actually take a seat back and that means not just giving up your space at the gig, that might mean not getting the grant. And then that also might mean reformulating your, your benchmarks of taste around a, a form of artwork that is not embedded in like uh, intertextual renaissance references or all these sorts of kind of heritage modes of literature or whatever. So that's, there's so much that's going on and the politics of patronage and where the money goes in arts to allow um, minority communities and all sorts of members to come up and actually assert a voice and develop a voice um, and then and pray that that voice then becomes one that's, a, 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 I guess, a quality voice, you know. So it's, 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 a, it's a land, it's a fucking, um, yeah, it's a, it's a complex space, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it is a, it is a, it's an extremely complex space and you touched on like you know that the, like those problems that you brought up are gigantic and I don't know like I often feel like they're also unanswerable um or very kind of you know like they they're so meta like you know if if you are white and if if there is some affirmative action stuff going on you know how uh, how should your opinion be uh, how sh- how should how much should your opinion about you know the ethics of affirmative action be valued you know this kind of stuff there's just so many like questions that you can ask of the questions that you can ask of the questions and it's just kind of this eternal like eternal negotiation and renegotiation um but one thing that i think you said that isn't kind of complex and that um is like a very deep truth is that there is it feels like there is no culture of patronage or kind of a uh an extremely impoverished culture of patronage in australia i'm not sure what it's like in the uk or the us or other parts of the world um but yeah it you know uh with kind of streaming services um, Spotify, 
Netflix, you know, podcasts, all of these things where you pay a fraction and get access to kind of gigantic libraries of um, things to consume. There's a kind of psychological trick that this plays on people where it makes them expect constantly. And this isn't new, you know, I'm not saying anything new here, Um, but it means that the creator who isn't kind of, you know, who, who doesn't own a monopoly of some kind, who doesn't, who isn't behind a paywall, of, who isn't behind a very popular paywall, it means that it's very hard to generate an income. Um, yeah, like, you know, podcasting is probably one of the least financially intelligent areas to get into because, like, intrinsically, it's free. Yeah. Um, and so, Do you put ads on your podcast? No, yes. I don't. Yeah. Would you consider that? I think like if I got if I got paid a lot and if it was for something that I cared about. Like if if like uh I don't know, if like um Headspace were like, look, we'll give you ten K to plug our app, I'd be like, Look, absolutely. But if like fucking, you know, like car sales wanted me to do it, like, you know, um probably not. Uh but yeah, you know, like I think um, this is where things like social welfare and grants and this kind of stuff become so important because the stronger the welfare state, the str- the more flexibility people have to say no to like dumb shit like advertising car sales. Um, and like it's it's awful people being reduced to like advertising stuff like car sales in order to generate an income like that's just crushing it's such like a like just a a mortifying reflection of the trajectory of our creative culture um yeah so i don't know like i'm pretty i'm pretty sad about patronage i think it upsets me um thinking about it um because yeah in some form in some way the the culture, the existence of a culture of patronage feels like the kind of ultimate manifestation of, uh, you know, kind of the basic tenets of the free market. Um, you know, like if your work, if your work is good and consumed by many people, you will like earn an income from it. But like, there are so like, you know, before you were talking about who decides like, you know, which metrics do we use to judge creations to be good or bad? Um, and it seems like the metrics we use aren't the metrics that we create, but instead they are like generated by the algorithm. Um, because, you know, like my, my presence on the internet has grown uh, slowly, but kind of recently, very quickly over the past like three months, because I've been on TikTok and I have no idea what TikTok is doing for me. Um, but it seems like it directs people to my page in a way that hasn't happened before. And like, this has got me thinking about like, you know, the kind of content that I make and yeah, it's just like, because you make uh, them, you make, you start being like, oh, I don't want to, but I'll make the content the platform wants. 
because then, I, <laughs> yeah. then it'll direct them to the content that I want them to see. But there's always a, a process of filtration there because then you might get, you know, 10,000 TikTok views and then 1,000 of them go to the Insta page. Then another 200 might be redirected to the podcast. Then of those 200, you might get 10, if you're lucky, that are willing to give any money to it. So it's like the actual thing of the, the vastness of the pool that has some exposure to you, to the people who are willing to actually pay for the content. It's so reduced. It's like maybe 1%. And so it's, it's, it's a tough, tough battle. I don't, know, I don't know what we do. And especially like you're right. I think the problem in the Australian patronage, certainly in philanthropy circles, is there's no con. There's like a few large donors um, uh, in, a, in Melbourne or in Sydney who are kind of donor families who have lots of money. They sort of work like grants, grant bodies, because you still have to apply through their formal things. There's not this sort of thing that happens more often in the States of people who aren't, you know, hugely like they're not billionaires, but they've, they've been on corporate salaries all their life and they probably have a bit of spare cash. I mean, why aren't they giving donations of one or two or 3000 a year towards various art institutions? And if they, if they are, why do they have to just be towards um, like main stage companies or, or, or like why aren't they going to more community endeavours? Yeah, 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 yeah. Why would you give your money back to your private school? I have I never like it's, it's it's crazy to me, um. But on on grants, I think the the better model is is um and where I think like city of Melbourne or municipal actual grants delivered by people who know the community is I think the most sort of just way to do it. And then hopefully you work in a system whereby whatever's paying for those grants, whether they're people's rates or that's coming from federal coffers, is sort of equal um, across municipalities. Um, that would be great rather than, because I know City of Melbourne has a huge grant funding pool, which they mainly did in response to how eroded um, federal like OSCO and, uh, and stuff were. But if you could have the same thing out in... I don't know, out in Frankston, out in Braybrook, out in all these sorts of places to kind of have like art that responds to the community in question. Um, that would be the ideal, I think. And rather than you know scrounging up to scrounging up to rich people, but um, also you've got to do a bit of that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, and what are you what are you working on at the moment? What sort of stuff are you making? You want to identify me? Okay, um, uh, I'm working on music. Um, I have two different music projects going at the moment. One is my personal one, an album in the works, um, and another is another is a band. Um, and then I have to be so careful. And then um, actually, I don't even think I can say the other thing I'm working on because it's on this week, and it's it will just be like, well, that's what that thing is and that's on and I'll just Google that thing and then I'll know who you are. So I I shall not say... But then, you know what's annoying about this is that the meme page has much more traction than my own personal page. And I'm like... And I have this thing about being anonymous. And I'm like, I could be generating, you know, a bit of interest in my work. And I think eventually I will... Uh, the, the offer is too enticing not to proceed with like, okay, at some point doing subtle administrative reveals um, in order to drive, because the, the artistic project has been something I've been working on 12 years and 
the main page is three months old, you know, like it, it feels unfair to not give, give, um, to redistribute some of that <laughs> capital back to myself. <laughs> oh God. Back to the art thing though, I have one other thing I wanted to say that's really important is I just think it actually does take so long for artists to become good at what they do and resolved in what it is they do. And that requires a lot of failure and failure requires money. So I think I said something quite callous earlier, whereas something about kind of dilettantes and hobbyists and all that sort of thing. Everyone starts that way, but it's only through the, the one, the courage and your conviction, but actually two, being enabled through finance to fail again, that you actually become uh, um, uh, like an artist of merit. So I don't know how you ever resolve that. That's probably a story as old as time. Um, it's going to come down to your internal resilience, but it's also going to come down to your means and your ways and all those sorts of things and your networks. Um, but I just wanted to clarify um, because I, I think that I, I might have sounded a bit um, yeah, callous. No, <laughs> yeah. no, I didn't. Yeah. I, I didn't think you sounded callous. Um, but I think, that, I think that's a really helpful and true clarification. And I think that that clarification highlights like one of the saddest parts about the erosion of um, the, the erosion of progressive politics and the erosion of kind of central, you know, kind of, you know, the most fundamental needs that a person has, which is like, you know, one of which is the capacity to have free time, um, which like, you know, you were talking before about the UK and how purchasing power is significantly lower um, and like, you know, if, if you're going to have to work an extra 15, 20 hours a week to live the same life, like, you know, it's like, um, yeah, yeah where's, it's the time? where's the time to create? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah. How, how do you, where do you make shit? Yeah. Like how, what are we, yeah. What sort of world are we developing? Um, what sort of, yeah, this, this first world is becoming a world where like, freedom is bought by freedom is bought and um even then the people who can buy the most it seems like more and more uh they are working longer and longer hours um and giving themselves less freedom as well yeah well that's something i talk about is this inequity in labor hours is that um if you you actually have to be not amongst the mega rich because they're not doing they're not lifting a finger once you get to a certain stage your money just generates money but amongst people who are you know of the corporate class or whatever you're um uh, earning you know two three hundred k a year happily working 50 60 hours not only give give yourself a break and give up some of those hours in turn you give up some of the money redistribute the labor it's this thing that happens where you get in a job and you're like only i can do the job it's not true the organization functions very well without you other people can do the role you might do it like an inch better but like not that much better um yeah yeah but like <laughs> even you know what you said before about the uber uber rich you know not needing to lift a, a finger to make money like, I, I imagine that would be true for some people, but for others, like, you know, like, I remember listening to an interview with Elon Musk because I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And I don't know whether he just, like, talks shit or whether he's being serious, but he doesn't seem like the kind of guy to, like, pathologically lie. But, you know, he says that he 
like, you know, for, for there have been periods while he was like, you know, extraordinarily wealthy where he wouldn't have left like the Tesla factory for like two weeks. Like he sleeps there and like just wakes up and works and like doesn't go home. Like what the, like honestly, what the fuck? And like respect, like if you love fucking batteries and shit, that like if you love it, like sick, but like also. But that's about his mad scientist ego because the thing is sure, like Tesla's such a unique case because it's so it's valued so much on speculation. Like it's such a speculative value compared to other like more Walmart also like Elon Musk's huge wealth accrual just in the last year is unlike anything that the fact that his wealth is just like ten times or something what it was two or three years ago when his companies if you look at the value of Tesla in terms of how much it actually sells compared to other large car companies. You know, it's, it's about the speculation about the future of, of electric cars and things like that and, and batteries and all that sort of thing. But it, his money would generate money anyway through compounding interest if he was just an investor like Warren Buffett is. He'd still be making hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe it wouldn't be the mad scientist level because he's created this enigma around his brand and his hard work. But there is this funny thing because I was having a conversation in the DMs the other day about someone who was like a, an Elon Musk stand saying, well, he works so much harder. And I was like, well, he might work four or five times harder. That's, that's as much as he humanly can work more because there's no more hours in the day. If you work six hours a day and he works all 24, it can only be four times harder. Do you know what I mean? And so if you were working on a meritocracy, the the and you could say okay well he's worth four times more okay so then maybe you can say the value of his ideas is more maybe he's a better more conceptual thinker maybe, so you ask, ask to start adding these different things of how do we conceive of value and something david graver talks about you know how what's what's the ontological theory of value but even along all those different metrics if you're trying to figure out the most i can come up with is he's worth 10 or 20 times more the standard worker which is something far less obscene than him being worth a billion times more <laughs> Than, than, um, than us. Uh, God, it's, it's it's frustrating. But he does he does work hard. But I think it's it's more to do with his manic, you know, his personality than than anything. Yeah. Mm. And then also also full circle, in the like, I feel like part of the kind of you know really edgy, um, really edgy kind of you know, internet subculture world. I feel like part of that world really, really fetishizes uh, like extraordinary, like people pushing their kind of mental and physical boundaries. Um, like I feel like some of the idols of the edgelords, you know, like David Goggins. Do you know that guy? No, no. Tell me. I hate okay. not knowing things. Tell me who he is. I hate not knowing things. <laughs> <laughs> I David hate Goggins. not knowing things. People expect me to know everything too, and I often don't. I'm gonna Google. Hey, you're person. the you're the meme king. You're the meme king. People you... always expect me to know everything. I'm like, I'm just a gay boy. Where's that? Um, is he the American <laughs> runner? Yeah, he's like oh, this, this fitness guy. Oh, actually, I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, he's like this crazy fitness guy. You know, runs like 200 kilometer marathons. Like this kind of thing. Um, and I feel like he's, he has become like a disciple for like, he has become a disciple. And so has like, you know, Joe Rogan. And so has like Elon Musk. And I feel like what is, what pulls people towards these men is that they 
are like extraordinarily unhinged. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like seriously. Have a seriously. Bright, have a Kit Kat. Yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. And like, I don't know whether, whether people, whether there's some kind of like, whether it's some like strange pornography for them where they're like, oh my God, like look at the kind of extreme, like this is just so extreme what these people are doing. And it's like, you know, it's like fascinating and enticing and capturing and like um, hypnotizing. But yeah, I feel like the world that they, that these men encourage is like quite a scary world. And I feel like I have been really affected by it because like, I'm a perfectionist who's anxious and depressed and like who comes from like a migrant family where there's a lot of pressure to succeed. And so I feel like I'm very vulnerable to seeing like people uh, like kind of, you know, bend their lives in these really like extraordinary ways and work for crazy hours. So yeah, like, I don't know. What's your, like, how, how do you feel about the work-life balance? What would be your ideal ideal combination? Um, I I like. I mean, I know I'm probably just a victim of this sort of market capital American dream. Work hard, play by the rules, get what you want thing. Um, and I do idealize leisure time, and I love uh, coffee break time and holiday time. But I actually think, by nature, I am someone who. Um, fetishizes work a lot who takes joy in work and takes joy in projects um and the process of of the making and um and also because when you're when you're making and doing you you've got less time to ponder the the existential dread uh, it's a pleasant distraction so my ideal it's not everyone's ideal but i i quite like working quite a lot and i know that's probably not a very like you're asking me what I like, not not what my what my ideology is about work or my values are around work in general and people who who work. But in terms of how I actually um, feel satisfied or satiated um, by life, um, I quite like uh, working. But, um, yeah, <laughs> but not in that crazy way because I think when I was in my early twenties, I really had bought into that ideal and was like working three jobs and like gotta make this thing happen this show I'm doing and gotta and everyone like don't sleep sleeps for the rest when you're dead or whatever Uh, and I'm not like that if if anything I feel like I've gone too much the other way I've just become too much of a kind of um a a kind of party boy who just is like fuck that um and I actually was thinking recently I was like oh this year you've got to work a bit harder because you went a bit too down the um the other way which is great it's yin and yang but I think this year I'm like I'm like oh, I think I want to work a bit harder yeah <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> me too me too I didn't go down the the party boy path but I feel like last year actually no I think I did work really hard um but yeah I think I think I want to I want to uh my goal for this year is to be efficient yeah work smarter not harder it's hard with these things because they're so distracting oh they're fucked they're so fucked yeah um all right i think at this point we should turn to some of the fan questions um i would be i would be letting them down um (laughs) if if i didn't ask and i'm gonna i'm gonna ask the actual the i'm gonna ask the interesting ones because some of them were some of them were revolting i got some like just deplorable questions um like some of the most 
feral. Like speaking of unhinged, my like my inbox from some of your followers was like Yeah, they're fucked. They're completely <laughs> fucked. I have to say this on air. You all are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the the PG and um yeah, and and interesting ones. So first one to set the scene, um what is what is your philosophy? Um, my philosophy is um, uh, too many pingers, too many schlongs. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> do you want my real philosophy? Um, I'm, I'm an optimist, which is <laughs> weird. I'm a kind of glass half full kind of guy. I just, I just think, um, you know, be kind. Be, oh my God, Ellen DeGeneres, be kind to one another. <laughs> wow. No, okay. no, that's not my I have no idea is the answer to that question. Yeah. All right. All right. That's good. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. Um all right, the second the second relevant question is um do you think I'm trying to remember these off by heart. Uh what do you think Oh, I guess it was some, it was something about technology. Do are you hopeful are you hopeful that like social media is going to become a place to enact meaningful change or something like this? Well, I think it already has in some respect. I don't think that similar to what happened with, you know, Vietnam War and the the media and how that sort of caused outrage in in the 70s. Like, um, I think that BLM uh, would not have been as such a kind of big global movement, whether it resulted in meaningful change that's different, but that's because of the powers you're up against. The, the fact that it was, uh, that it proliferated so widely is a testament to the, the power of social media and to us being able to turn, I mean, the, the, the irony of these phones and everything is that we're, we live in a surveillance state, they're surveilling us, but it also means that with them we can surveil authorities and the powers that be and release um, information that otherwise would be maybe kept from us and, and see the horrific things that then um, cause outrage and, and, and allow us to manifest change. Um, whether that um, outweighs the damage they do, I don't know. But um, I think they already are um, a catalyst for, for social change. Yeah. Cool. Okay, thank you. And the last question, last question is, um, what do you have to say to the naysayers and the haters? Um, well, I don't know. What do I have to say to them? I'm nothing but love to the naysayers and haters. People... Yeah, people try and inbox me all this shit, but it's usually fake beef. I've noticed. It's just like they just they just they they want a they want a reaction. Um, the the naysayers and the haters. Uh, what would I say to you? I would say light it up. <laughs> and also, my other favorite thing is get a grip. Like get a grip. Get a grip. It's just fucking it's just a meme it's i I'm, I'm not telling you it's not the scripture honey i don't want you to t- treat it like the fucking bible and I, I would be worried if you did i would think you you seriously were unhinged um <laughs> so <laughs> that's what i'd say to them yeah okay and on the back of that i have a question um can you please walk us through some of the most salacious or interesting or concerning 
experiences you've had through Merrillectuals 2.0? Either DMs or conversations uh, or yeah. things, you've, things you've realized. What's going on? Okay, so there's a few things that happen. Early on, there was this phase where, like, um, I think I said dick pic for admin reveal. And I was just surprised at how many gay boys jumped at the opportunity to send this anonymous meme page admin their dick. And, I mean, look, we live in the age of the dick pic. No one cares. Like, um, I mean, people do. I'm not saying you should send unsolicited dick pics. In this case, it was very solicited. I just did not realise that you actually would. Um uh, the other concerning thing, which I actually like, is that I, for some people, I, I think much like Lifeline, there's value in talking to someone anonymous uh, about your mental health issues. Um, and I made a rule early on that I responded to every message. But what actually that has meant is that sometimes I've had messages where people are actually in genuine crises and I'm the one they're talking to. And I hope they've been okay at dealing with, but I'm certainly not a professional um, and I won't go into details regarding those specific instances because they're actual people's lives. Um, I've had a few run-ins with, uh, I haven't actually been cancelled yet. The closest I've come to be cancelled, and I think quite tellingly, is by small business owners who can't take a joke. People think it's like individuals or things that, that might not be able to take a joke. And generally, I found people quite playful and well-meaning. The only wor- worries have been these uh, small, small business class traders, I call them, um, who, who, are, <laughs> who are worried about their bottom line. And I uh, look, I, I just think that what I was, I, I called them out. I, I made this in and out list and I called out a particular shop. I put them on the out list. But the whole point of the in, in and out list was I was taking the piss out of the entire form. Everything I put on the in list was completely tweaked and deranged. No one would say anything on that in list was in and everything that was on the out list was definitely in. And so I was like, if you can't just see the, the, the actual premise of this joke, you know what I mean? I've just said you're in. And they got so upset. And, um, Who was it? I, I don't want to. I already got in so much trouble. And did you have to delete the post? I deleted it, and then I put them on the. I did redid it and put them on the in list. And I was like, you just you can. <laughs> Are they? Is that post still up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, surely you can say who it is if they're, uh, if they're on there. Okay, oh, yeah, I doubt they'll listen. Um, but like they just, uh, it was uh, it was a it was a certain um sandwich shop in Rathdown Village um, that's known for making gorgeous little sandwiches in Rathdown Village. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. That is so funny. <laughs> I'm like, you make sandwiches. Calm down. Oh, my God. Oh, my yeah. God. That's the funniest thing ever. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, very funny. Someone tried to call, um, and I don't know if they were calling me in or out, they tried to call me out for going to Midsummer the other day um, because Midsummer, you know, has cops there and um, Circa has a pop-up and I was just like, it's a big free gay party, you know, like we're we're all ethically compromised in every supermarket we go into. Do you know what I mean? Like we suddenly, when when an event's labelled as as queer, we hold these... Uh, very high standards and rightfully so we want our queer community to be um as sort of progressive and stuff but i I think it was a a case of the perfect getting in the way of the good 
in terms of uh, Midsummer being one of the few queer events that I really feel reaches out um, into suburbia, into the regions, and, and is like a, a mass thing of fun. And, 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 you know, there's a lot of... And I've made these jokes about the aesthetics of kind of like gay boys and all this sort of stuff that are kind of untasteful. But re- really, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, I love it, you know? Like, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a good thing that everyone can get together and dance free and, and that that's a state sponsored event i mean that speaks to um a a degree of progressivism within the um, body politic which is important because the opposite of that would be really scary and there are plenty of places in the world where that isn't um the case but meanwhile we should keep agitating you know a cab or whatever at the at midsummer but i think yeah uh, that was my my latest little rumble not so much a rumble i think it was quite a diplomatic little thing Wow, there's some there's some incredible stories. Um, I think the sandwich shop is one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. Um, very 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 good story. Well, hey, Merylectuals 2.0, it's been real. Um, you've been you've been very generous with your time. Uh, you've been very you've been very generous with your. Um, Thank you for listening to my interview with Merylectuals 2.0. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy it, please consider supporting my podcast. You can do so via Patreon or PayPal. They're very easy. They take a couple of seconds and they'll allow me to keep affording to make content. So there's a link in the bio to both Patreon and PayPal. Thank you so much. And I'll see you in the next episode of Alex Listens. Take care.